Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Exciting to be here. Uh, being in, in Phoenix is a, in Scottsdale specifically is really a treat to be able to visit uh, my mom. Um, but teaching Torah is the thing that really, uh, for me, is extremely exciting. Um, the text always has something new to share with us, and the reason for that is because the people who are sitting around these tables right now are the people through whose lenses, both the way you see and the way that you perceive. That is how we're going to be able to understand the text um, and its relevance to us today. And so I'm going to start by talking about the frustration that so many of us have in 2018. We're going on to 2019 very soon. And that is, who is it in this world, and specifically in the United States, but I would like to generalize and say in this world, who has the monopoly on truth. Whose narrative do we need to buy into when we see what's going on in this world? And the desire to find the narrative, to acquire the narrative, is one that I think the author of our Torah specifically, and Tanakh in general, and when I say author, please understand that I'm referring to author either as capital A or small case A, you be the judge. You be the one through whose filter, when I say the author, you can either think of the divine or you can think of anything uh, less than the divine that put together this incredible text that we have. Maybe if things work out and the dynamics are comfortable here, at the end of my second talk tonight, I'll share with the people where I'm coming from with regards to author capital A or author small a. But for now, that's not relevant. What is relevant is that what we have in our text is something that was purposely designed, in my opinion, to create ambiguities that force us as thinking people to interpret the text through our eyes, through our lenses. And uh, when that happens, the question of who has the narrative gets thrown out the window. Because the answer is each and every one of us. When we look at the text, when we consider what the text is trying to tell us, we are the ones that control the understanding. And it's not for us to impose that understanding on other people, but it is on us to share our understanding with other people, not to convince them that what we think is right and what they think is wrong, but rather because the text calls out to us Darshani, explain me in the way that you understand the text to be. And the one that we're going to learn today is an incredible illustration of this 
purposeful, what I call a purposeful ambiguity, that the text itself, the author said, I'm going to give you a story because the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis, is filled with stories. The author said, I'm going to give you a story, and when you look at it really closely, you're going to be able to find things there that are going to require you to make some calls, to make some uh, um, attempted understandings that you want to come up with. And let's see how that works. And so this is really going to be an exchange. I'm Certainly, I have my opinions about this. And as uh, Rav Shmuley said, that w the other thing that I teach at Pardes, besides um, uh, the Tanakh, uh, the Hebrew Bible, is that I am the biblical Hebrew grammar geek. <laughs> All right? People have questions about biblical grammar. They come to me, and I uh, believe that to understand the text in its simplest form, grammatically correctly, grammatically accurately, gives us an opportunity to understand or to get a closer understanding of what that author, again, capital A, small a, doesn't matter at this point, wanted to um, communicate to us. So let's do some work on that. When we, um, we'll have a, 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 an opportunity to see the big picture. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. And we do have Humashim here in case you have something that might be outside of the tiny text that we have on the first page of our uh, handouts, that you might want to say, wait a minute, but didn't I remember so-and-so? And so we need to have to uh, the, the Torah to be able to go perhaps to those other places. So if, we, if those of you who are sitting in that corner can start passing the, the Torahs around, or if we can get them to everybody, just to be accessible to you, just in case we need to check something else out because what we have here is just a few verses, but there's so much more in the dynamics of what's going on. Okay, so if you want to, you can turn in the text to chapter 32 of the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, which in your text is beginning on page 219. I only gave you the first eight verses um, because I think that what's there is what's critical for our understanding of who stole the narrative or who has access to the narrative. And is this an episode that is friendly or antagonistic between our two brothers? So let's go back to the beginning. Isaac and Rebecca. Um, I would prefer, with your permission, to call them Yitzchak and Rivka. Okay? Uh, I'm going to use the Hebrew names. It's just easier for me. Yitzchak and Rivka get married. She, like her um, mother-in-law from the previous generation, Sarah, has trouble giving birth. She says, I can't handle it. And it turns out that finally, after her husband Yitzchak prays to God, she is pregnant, and it turns out that she has twins. And the text tells us that these two twins will be um, constantly in uh, conflict with one another. In fact, the Midrash, there's an interpretation of what does it mean, conflict, um, in order to already set us uh, buying into somebody else's narrative, we're told that when Rivka would walk by a house of um, avodah zarah, of idolatry, one of the two uh, uh, babies in her t tummy would go nuts, and then when she would walk by a Beit Midrash, 
The other one would go nuts. Clearly, they would go nuts in excitement, one wanting to go towards idolatry and the other one wanting to go towards uh, learning and uh, piety, which, again, it's not in the text, but it certainly is an attempt to get us to understand or to try and buy into the notion that Esau, bad, uh, Esau, bad, Yaakov, good. All right? I don't know if you get that reference, Dana Carvey. Um, yeah? When was that written? Babylonian, or I mean, when was that interpretation of the, the, Good. The Midrashim, the ones <laughs> to which I'm making reference, were the end of the 5th, beginning of 6th, 7th centuries of the Common Era. Post, uh, during the end of the Talmudic period, into this time that was following that. So it, it wasn't necessarily because... Esav was known in metaphors as being the Christian world. So it's very possible that during that time of the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, that it was a polemic. It was a statement to say, Esav, that is Seir, that is Edom, that is Christianity, are the idol worshipers and we're not. But it's subtle. And it's also not in our text. And I have been working very hard when I teach... uh, teach the Hebrew Bible to uh, have people see the text in its nakedness, in its starkness, in the words that are found in the text. Midrash is important. Don't get me wrong, except my students at Pardes will tell you that um, when they say the word Midrash, um, I give them a a stare and they want to, they feel like they're supposed to leave the room. But it's only for effect. It really, I believe Midrash also has what to contribute. And so, Yaakov and Esav are going to be at each other's throats. That was predicted from even before they were born. So the time goes on, and they are growing up, and Esav is a man of the field. He does his, um, oh, they're twins. That's an important piece here. So he is in the field, and Yaakov is what we call, what the text tells us, Ishtam Yoshev Ohalim. He's a simple man sitting in his tent, and of course the rabbis say, what does he do in his tent? Studies Torah. But that's not in the text. The text is only trying to tell us that he's sitting in his tent. So I'd like to now put this very simple and very direct question to you just so that we can get started in this notion of can we buy our own or can we create our own narrative? What was Yaakov doing when he wasn't studying Torah? What was he doing in his tent? The words are ish tam. Yoshev Ohalim. Tam, from the word tamim, you know, in, uh, on Pesach, we have the four children that are uh, uh, against whom the Torah establishes its four questions. So there's the chacham, the wise, the rasha, the, uh, the wicked, tam, who is called the simple son. And by the way, I want you to know that in some manuscripts, he's not called uh, the tam, he's called the tipesh the stupid son. That has been edited out. Now we have Tom, which is a much nicer way of saying pretty much the same thing, and that is simple, simple as in not able to figure things out on his own or on her own, and the the one who doesn't know how to ask, and then you open up the conversation with them. So the Tom, this is the Tom that we're talking about with regards to Yaakov. So let me ask you, what did Yaakov do? What do you think? 
I, I would like to submit that the Torah hadn't been given yet, and so it wasn't that he studied Torah. He didn't go to the yeshiva of Shem and Aver, who were uh, ancestors that opened up a yeshiva. It, it's anachronistic. If he was a chef. Okay, go ahead. Well, we only have one example of what he cooked. Yeah, what was the example that you're giving? The lentil soup. Very good. No, that's fine. That's not here yet. Okay. We haven't even gotten here yet. But see, this is what I'm talking about is we have an example of him cooking. That's in the text itself. So it's perhaps this is what he did inside his tent. Is he spent his time experimenting with culinary arts. Excellent. What else? That's, not, that's uh, Rabbi Kaplan's lens. What about the rest of you? Yeah. Was this before or after he is? I forgot the name of his uncle. Lavan, way before. After he ran away from... This is much before that. This scene of him sitting in his tent is when he's a kid and his brother's out hunting. And what might he be doing? Okay, just sitting and contemplating, meditating. Very well could be. What else? Well, maybe he's making clothing. Okay. Could be, you know, because he puts on other clothing... Uh, later. Right. So, in the same way that the text references food, excellent. His clothes, so maybe he's a, a tailor. Okay, a tailor. Okay. What other possibilities do you think? He's contemplating his choice. Okay, sure. Whatever it is that he's doing, it seems that the text wanted us to understand that that was an important point. Why? It's up to us to figure out. So, he's sitting in his tent and his brother's out hunting, and one day his brother comes and he is famished, and he's exhausted. He's been hunting all day, and he sees his brother is indeed cooking, and he says, I got to have some of that lentil soup. Uh, and the word haliteni, it's, it's a one-timer. This verb is found only one time in the entire uh, Tanakh. Uh, that's called a hepax legomenon, um, that's a word, by the way, that my kids have in their active vocabulary, okay? Um, that's just a part of the, the uh, Friday night conversation that we have when I say something that they've never heard out of me before, and they say, Abba, is that a Hapax legomena? Smirk, smirk, snicker, you know, so, but that's okay. So, haliteni is shove down my throat. It comes from the Akkadian, la'atu, which means to force feed. So he's using, and the text is there telling us He's using this very gross word instead of the regular give me. He says, force feed me this lentil soup. And Yaakov says, I will, but you have to sell me your birthright. Now let's just get an in indication of what the birthright is all about. The birthright is not only an a, a element of esteem. You also get a multiple portion of inheritance from your father upon his death. And so the person who is deemed the firstborn is entitled to that birthright, and they get extra, uh, all sorts of extras. And so it's really a great thing to be the firstborn. Now, Esau was the firstborn. Can he, and I'm asking you, can he give up his firstborn status? What do you think? What's your gut? No. Of course not. Right. Is anybody here a twin? No. Okay. 
Um, who here is a firstborn? Let's go that route. Okay. Did you, while you were growing up, have privileges that came to you as a result of being firstborn? No. No, you said. Okay. None at all. No. You didn't get to go out uh, and come back later than your siblings at the same, that, those same years that you... Years? Yes. They could stay out as late as you even though you were older than they. Okay, another case. Did somebody else have a contrary experience? Yeah, I did. Um, I was expected to help grow my brother. Okay. I was expected to, he would want to hang out with my friends. Well, wait a second, that's not a privilege, that's an expectation. I had, I could tell you a lot of expectations, but we're talking privileges here. Well, this is what I'm thinking. That's right. Then you go with what you're thinking. Yeah. Thinking. Go ahead. Um, no, so I did. I did feel that as a um, as a firstborn, um, uh, there were expectations on me. Okay. And I had, and I wouldn't say privileges because I wasn't treated any better than than my brother, but um, I was expected to help my brother out. And I'm seeing it right now with my grandchildren. I have two grandsons, mm -hmm. and I see how the older one is. I see I see similarities. How the older one is expected to um, help the younger one. With your permission, I'd like to dig a slightly more more deeply, if I can. Looking back, was that a positive imprint that came to you? That having to take those responsibilities, those expectations coming on you, did it pay off for you in any way? as you got older or as you are older now than you were then? It certainly was, po I felt growing up, it, it was positive. Okay. Because I was um, maybe appreciated a little more. Okay. Has it, has it affected me in my life? Yeah, I would think so. As a corporate person, um, I learned um, how to deal with other people. Okay. When I was in charge of them. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I had that background to... Um, Very good. ...to motivate them. Okay, thank you. Yep, yes? My observation is the opposite. Because in the first child, you know, the only child wrote thread, I don't know what I'm doing. By the third child, there's no pictures of them, but there's also <laughs> fewer rules, fewer... Okay. ...as, as, as you go to subsequent... Okay. Excellent. So we have dynamics. I think I'd like to ask for a consensus here that there are dynamics with children coming into the world and those dynamics are different depending on how the parents see their roles as Iman Abba, as mother and father, and so on. Well, I don't think that Esav had any, uh, any leg to stand on with regards to selling his birthright except perhaps it was because they were twins. And because, no, you say no, it doesn't matter, right? Well, it shouldn't matter. I don't want to butt in, but you have to compare this story with Jonathan and David. And the reason I have to is because they were twins? It's the same theme. They weren't born twins, but... David was taken into the household of Saul and treated as his son. Okay. Someplace where he calls him my son. Uh-huh. And then Jonathan and David form a great a close friend. Okay. So that when it comes time for the third night, the third day, and the feast of the new moon, David doesn't 
appear for the feast. And Saul says, hey, where is he? Okay. Why isn't he here? And then Jonathan says, oh, I told him to get out of here because he's, he's, his life is in danger. Okay. Well, then Saul says to Jonathan, I forgot the exact sequence, you fool, don't you realize that as long as he lives, you can't? Okay, I got to tell you, they were friends. Esau and Yaakov didn't get along so well. So when you want to say that it's a parallel, I'm going to push back and say... Uh, the parallel is that they were supposed to be... Yeah, it was, it's the same kind of... It's a reversal story, but this is a reversal story. Okay. Esau and Jacob should have been threats to each other. And I think that but they were... But they didn't end up that way. They ended up making a deal. Let's get there. Uh, give me a little bit of time. Okay. Well, that's one point. I would like to suggest that what we're going to learn today is yet another point. Yes, go ahead. You, you made a reference just now of except perhaps because they were twins. And it seems to me that that's important oh. because um, even though one is, is the older than the other from a legalist point of view, mm -hmm. from a historical legalist right, right. point of view, I would think from a relationship point of view and from how they may be seen as their role in the family and their role as each other, they're both firstborn. Okay. Will. I mean, they're, they're co-equally born. Fantastic. My, my suggestion is that your comment is coming from a place where it's important to you that the children have separate but equal responsibilities and privileges and so on. Not everybody lives that. So, as we continue, we have um, the, the sale goes through, um, and uh, then later on, when Yitzhak is about to die, he calls his eldest, and the text is really keen on letting us know that Esau, Yitz, uh, Esau is the eldest. He calls the eldest in and says, I'm about to die. He's blind, by the way. I'm about to die. Go and fix me my most favorite food. And it's interesting uh, Rabbi Kaplan, you mentioned that he was into the culinary arts, and yet his father gives his brother, Esav, the opportunity, and he sends him out, and he says, go and fix these, the vittles, the venison, the, the matamim that I like, these uh, delicious foods that I like, and he sends Esav away. Esav doesn't give a, uh, any kind of resistance, and yet, as the story goes on, and Rivka, the mother, hears what's going on, she says to Yaakov, I'm going to fix what your father loves the most. And she takes away from Yaakov that ability to cook because she takes full responsibility for having Yaakov get the blessing of the firstborn blessing instead of her brother, his brother uh, Esau. And so, indeed, uh, Yaakov impersonates Esau. And uh, the text tells us that uh, Yitzchak gives him the blessing and then Esav shows up and says, hi, Dad, where's my blessing? And Yitzchak says, whoops, I gave it to your brother, and I can't take it back, but you'll also be blessed, just not so much. And if you were a sibling who heard that from a parent, yes, you too will be blessed, but not so much, then your ire would be as was uh, Esav's, and he says, come the day my father dies, I'm going to kill that brother of mine. Well... Rivka gets hold of this information. She then tells uh, Yaakov, get out of here for your own sake. Now, what am I going to tell my husband? What am I going to tell my husband? I know. She goes to her husband and says, you know what? 
it's not good that he's going to be around all of these non-Israelites. Well, not really non-Israelites at the time. That's anachronistic. But non-family uh, members. We've got to send him to my brother in Aram Naharaim, which is in uh, northeastern uh, area from Israel. It's in uh, modern-day Syria, uh, northern Syria. Send him there. He'll marry into the family. So that's what she told her husband. But she told uh, Yaakov, you better get out of here because your brother wants to kill you. 20, I'm going to jump because we don't have a lot of time. 21 years later, they get together. But they don't just get together. But the text is really very dramatic in its presentation of how they get together. Now let's look at our source material. Yaakov is very nervous about this. Very nervous. Why? Well, because the last thing he remembers with regards to his brother is, come my father's death, I'm going to kill him. And so he's got to get out of there. And so he leaves. And he has 21 interesting years where he gets married a couple of times, has a bunch of kids. And now he's got to come back and he's got to go through his brother's territory. So what do we have? Look at the source material. Number, uh, this is chapter 32 of Breshit of Genesis, beginning at verse 4. Why did he have to come back? Was there a wedding he had to go to? Was there, what was there, do we know why he came back? The word in the previous section tries to give us that reason, and that is that things didn't go so well with him in the Lavan family. In fact, he worked all these years, and if he hadn't stepped up and been assertive, he would have gotten bupkis. As, as he realizes that this man, Lavan, father of my two wives, is not treating me very nicely. That's it. We got to get out of here because if we don't, we're going to lose everything as opposed to the, uh, how well we did. So he, he really, um, you know, when we made Aliyah, uh, there was always a question, were we leaving Toronto or were we going to Israel? And I was always very adamant about the fact that Toronto was a great city. But we didn't leave Toronto. We went to Israel. And as a result, we had to leave Toronto, so we left Toronto. Well, Jacob was the opposite. He was doing fine, but he had to leave Aram Naharaim, and he had to get out of there. And so he was running away. And the way that he had to run away, in order to get to Beersheba, which is pretty much where his family was located, he had to go through, if you can picture the map, you've got uh, Aram Naharaim in the north, you've got Edom, which is one of the um, nations that's located on the east side of the Jordan River. And then you go further down and you turn right and you get to Beersheba. So he, that, he has to go that way because the ridges are such that it's really too long a way to go inside of Israel. In order to get there, you go down the eastern side and then you have to go through Edom. So he knows he has to meet his brother. So what do we have? Can we have a volunteer to read just these Eight sentences. That's all. Now sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country, in the countryside of Edom. Instructed them as follows. Say this to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, with Laban, have I stayed and have lingered until just now. I came to own cattle. He's re uh, Frank is reading the text oh, from sorry. the... No, no, it's totally fine. There's a reason that I'm glad that you're doing that, and we'll get to that when you finish, okay? okay. Thank you. It's about the same, but when it's not, <laughs> that means that somebody is translating differently, and all translations are interpretations. Where's your translation from? This is JPS, a new JPS. This is not. I don't know what this one is. 
Okay, so it's his, it's his translation, and that's great. Okay. Which one do you want me to Keep going with the one you got, because we're reading the, okay. the one on the page. I came, I came to own cattle, donkeys, sheep, and male and female slaves, and I'm sending my Lord this message in the hope of pleasing you. When the messengers came back to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and he too, accompanied by 400 men, is marching to meet you. Jacob was terrified, so anxious was he, that he divided the people who were with him and the flocks, the herds, and the camels into two camps. Okay, let's stop there. What's going on? Jacob knows he has to go through his brother's territory. He tries to mitigate circumstances so that his brother will not uh, essentially want to kill him. So he sends him messengers. And the messengers, and by the way, in the Hebrew... Everybody has messengers, both Plout and JPS have the word messengers. Look at the Hebrew, the third word in on the top right column, and you see that the word is mal, malachim. A malach is an angel. That's the same word that was used to describe who it was that came to visit Abraham when he was recovering from his circumcision and he runs out to meet them, and they come in to tell one of them comes to tell him that they're going to have a kid a year later. The word is malachim. Malachim, are they messengers or are they emissaries from God, angels? So the author wants us to think about all the times that the word malach is used. And malach has in it a nuance of good tidings. And I'm using that as an Israeli, not as an American, because um, we're coming up to Christmas and good tidings are words that are used by in the Christian world and that's fine. But it really is what a messenger does. And so here, the text, the author is trying to tell us by using the word malach that there's positive energy that these people are being sent to bring to Yaakov's brother Esav. And they go there and then they return and they have an announcement. And the announcement is, we came to your brother Esav, he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. That's all the text tells us. Now, you've got to fill in the pieces. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. What do you think? Okay, you use the word troops. Already, you're being military, right? It sounds military to me. Excellent. So, and by the way, you're not alone. Yaakov thought the same thing. Okay, we have that in verse 8. Jacob was greatly frightened. 400 people coming to me in his anxiety divided the people with him because if they, if they defeat or if they smite one of the camps, the other one will be able to run away. So, yeah. Is that the only way to look at this? Let's take out some different lenses. What else could be the 400 men coming to meet him. They want to greet him. Simply stated, it's a welcome wagon. Red carpet. What do you think of that? Is it, it, does it sit okay in any way that they just are, he's sending 400 men to come greet them? I wonder, so I don't know at what point they get the message about, like they, they told him he's bringing all the, the slaves and all this cattle, all this, you know. Is it a way to also show comparable power? To show strength. So Aesop is bringing 400 people. You know, you've got to get people that are willing to do that. So okay. is that power, influence, 
uh, I'm successful too. Okay, so you are definitely going in the direction of what was going through Asav's mind when he gathered up these people to go with him. That's very good because what do you, you think that he says, I'm still in competition with my brother and I got to show him that I've got what I have because he, as, if you read the text that we just had, um, Jacob to, Yaakov told Esav through these malachim, I have acquired cattle, donkeys, sheep, male and female slaves. And so <laughs> Yaakov has already told his brother, I'm doing well and I, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Historical question. Yeah. Fratricide, of course, is the earliest thing in And tribal warfare is very early also. Is there any history in ancient societies of intra-family warfare? Like, would there be a precedent for him to actually believe that a, that a family member could have that type of warfare? Sure. We think of palace intrigue. You know that oftentimes it's the brother or the son who wants to take over the kingship and oftentimes, the way that uh, that's done is with a coup of killing the relative. So, yeah, that happens. Yes, if you want to talk about uh, in, in the palace of King David. But that, feels, that feels like a different phenomenon when you deal with monarchy. Because there are like, coups in political power. Is always kind of like an average sure, but, but in, in, the, in the ancient Near East, that's all we have to deal with are the monarchies. We don't have family feuds like this. And in fact, the uh, scientific position is that this is really talking about the monarchy, but it's talking about it from a, an esoteric place where you have to derive that stuff on your own. But yeah, there, there definitely was that kind of palace intrigue in which uh, siblings would do one another away. It could be just the opposite. Um, Esau's bringing these uh, troops to protect Jacob. Mm, that's an interesting twist. Go with that. Why does he need to protect his brother who stole his birthright? Well, because there could be other hostiles. There's other tribes. Organizations. Okay. He may know of a particular tribe over here in this canyon. Okay. That when he when they see all this stuff, fantastic, is warlike is going to attack them. And here he says, "Hey, I'm going to help my brother. I'm going to bring my guys." to surround him so that he doesn't get attacked. Fantastic. Really Thank you. I have never been exposed to that particular approach, but it's one that can be compelling because it really does have a different understanding of what those 400 men are doing there. See, I like the two brothers, so I'm going to flip Exactly. There you go. And that's your lens. That's your lens. Very good. So we have a situation here where we're not sure about that. There's something else that we're not sure about for which I'd like to ask your input, and that is, A, did the messengers have any, did they actually meet Esav? Because look at the text. The messengers returned and they said, we came to your brother Esav. He is coming to meet you. Was there actually a, a, a contact that was made between them? Or did they get there? And did Esau say something to them and they then left? Did they have a message to bring to Yaakov? The Hebrew is, Banu el achicha el Esav. We came to your brother Esav. We came to your brother Esav. Vegam holech likratcha ve'arbam me'ot ish imo. And also, there's the word vegam, which is really a superfluous word here. It just doesn't belong. 
and he, he, he and also he is come he is walking or traveling to meet you and there are 400 men with him you mean god put a word in that doesn't belong no it's up to us to figure out why it's there but it seems at first notice that it doesn't belong there Okay, it's for us to figure that out. My teacher, Dr. Walter Hertzberg, suggests that sometimes there's a change in perspective, right? So perhaps there's no dialogue at all. It was an observation. Just like the spies who went to the land of Israel, they don't speak to anybody. Right. Just when they observe what they see. Okay. So maybe they are coming back and reporting, saying, this is what we see. We see the direction he's coming in. He's obviously coming to meet you. These are the people that he's with. These are the circumstances. That's what it looks like to us and what's going on. Simply just a perspective from their idea about what they're observing in the direction that they're going. Excellent. So it's your contention that they did not have a actual a meeting with Esau. Okay? So was there something earlier that said that Jacob sent another message to say, Esau, I'm coming to see you? I mean, how does Esau even know? Well, because, well, that's right. Exactly, actually. And that is, he instructed them to say, this is what is happening. Mm -hmm. Do we know for sure that... The, the message was brought that is here. And if not, why are there 400 men so, going with Esau traveling northward? So if, if Esau yeah. has this many people at his command, so to say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. why doesn't he have lookouts? I mean, if he had lookouts, he might see this band of, of, of folks coming. And if he doesn't know yet that it's his brother, he may also be threatened by this traveling... So if I understand you correctly, it's possible that these 400 men are coming with Esau and they're coming to meet some group of travelers that he doesn't, Esau, Esau doesn't even know that they're his brother Jacob. Very possible. The lenses are working overtime right now. It's fantastic because the text is what you have in front of you. These interpretations are possible because of how we are allowing ourselves to see the getting together of these two young men. The shot, the simple understanding, which we get from verse 8 where Jacob gets really frightened, the text that, and what I grew up uh, when I was in Hebrew school and so on, is there's only one way to understand this, and that is Jacob wanted to have rapprochement with his brother Esav. He sends him all sorts of gifts. He says, I want to make up, and in response, that jerk Esau sends 400 men intending to wipe out the entire Israelite nation and all of us Jews with it. You understand where this is going, of course. Well, yeah, but it's also Midrash and it's also a reflection of those who want to bring home to the students. There are people out there, and I'm just quoting from the Pesach Haggadah once more, one more time. There are people who are out there that, who want to kill the Jews. And in every generation that exists, and unfortunately, we're in 2018, and it's not any different now than it has been over the past thousands and thousands of years, that there are those who want to do away with the Jewish people. Esav was one of those people and representatives of this anti-Jewish uh, clan. Um, and in some generations, it was indeed the Christians. But in others, it was just a generic for those who want to do away with the Jews. I almost got kicked out of Hebrew school because I kept going to Esau's uh, defense. 
And I, I was insistent, wait a minute, but he didn't do anything here. But I was always told, no, 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 Jacob is the good guy. Oh, you did, huh? Oh. Go ahead. Oh. 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 No, come on, this is what it's all about. You are, the refraction is getting bigger. Go ahead. He doesn't do anything. No. It's just a passing. They get together, they have a, a small conversation. They just pass each other. Mm-hmm. So, what? Yeah. 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 And so what's your conclusion? So he is not the bad guy. There you go. From Why your perspective. Because he is the bad guy. But what uh, Rav Shmuley said was when they kissed, there are dots in the actual Torah. There are dots above the word, and he kissed him. And the rabbis say, Why do we have those dots? And the answer is because Rachel's going to try and figure out that it's neutral, but we don't want that to happen. And so our interpretation of the dots are, he didn't kiss him lovingly, which is a word that you added, I would like to say. There's no love in those verses. There's hugging and kissing, which you, in your lens, interpret as being love, which is fantastic. Don't lose that. But the rabbis say the kissing was that he actually took a bite out of him because he's still angry with him because those who want to kill us and hurt us, they got to find every way possible. Okay, yep. I find it interesting in my previous question. Now, interpretations of 2,000 years are often as much indicative of the, of the agenda and the, the world of the interpreters as specific times are looking at, and that the, the Torah is being interpreted to justify and support their interpretation mm -hmm. 1,000 years later. Sure. And uh, that's the way that our tradition has worked for many years, is that we have an idea that we want to get across. Let's go back into the text and find a way to support that. Did you find the verse, Rachel? What verse are you quoting from? Sorry, verse 4, Genesis 33, page 22 in the... Good. Very top of the page of 222. And there's lots of those. Esau, though, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they burst into tears. Okay, go ahead. And so from your standpoint, start with that, what happened? Uh, I'm just, I'm just going to go on. When Esau looked around and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these? Yours, Jacob answered, the children with whom God has favored your servant. So yes, I am interpreting it as this beautiful moment. Please um, don't lose that because that's not, a great interpretation. I guess, I guess the... The, the wicked could look at it that they he fell on his neck and kissed him, I guess, biting him, and then and then they burst into tears because he just bit him. I guess you could say out of pain, or it's perhaps that um, they both cried. Um, Esau cried because he saw that his brother had so much more than him, and Yaakov cried because he realized ah he really is going to hurt me, and I am so anxiety ridden. 
There are many ways to see it. Because he, he, he realized the guilt that he had. It, there you go. Very well could be it was guilt. It could also be that they were both relieved because neither of them knew what was going to happen within this encounter. And that the shot is that they ran, Esau ran to him, hugged him, fell on his neck, kissed him. Let's just look at the simple understanding. Esau was the one that said, you don't have to worry about me. I'm going to give you a hug. I'm going to give you a kiss. And then both of them cried because um, they're brothers. It's emotional. Sure. But again, there are a lot of different lenses. And I appreciate that you ran ahead because you were so curious as to what was going to be. But right now, we're going to, we got to go back. Because, no, no, don't apologize, please. We've got about three minutes. I want to tell you that what you have on your sheets are two commentaries. One of them is the Abarbanel. He was a, a um, Spaniard who lived in, between 1437 and 1508. And on the top of the next page you have the uh, Shmuel David Luzzato, who was Italian, who lived between 800 and 1865 in Italy. So you've got a Spaniard and an Italian. Let's read those really quickly, and let's find out what their interpretation is. They're trying to explain what they saw in this story. Do we have a volunteer? Makasha, thank you. A Barbanel, first page. And he is coming toward you. It seems to me from the messengers that they did not know Esau's hatred toward Jacob. And so when they went to him and spoke to him regarding their mission, her he, he replied to them, Behold, he is coming toward you. And they thought that he was coming toward him to honor him. And because of this, they went back to Jacob and said to him, we came to your brother, to Esau, meaning, why should you call him my master? I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt and say that that's a sidebar that Abraham Burnell wants to say um, that the messengers um, corrected Yaakov, who kept calling himself his brother's servant. And they say, why are you demeaning yourself in front of your brother? He's your brother. He's not your master. And so they're trying to encourage him to be a little bit more... Uh, confident in his presentation. Please go on. He is none other than your loving, loyal brother. And behold, he is also coming toward you, meaning it is not enough that he should receive your messengers, but he himself is going and coming toward you to receive you, and 400 men are with him to honor you. Okay, so at this point, Abarbanel is trying to tell us that the impression that's being given is that it's a, po it's a positive uh, position taken by Esau in his sending the 400 men. It's a welcome mat, as we said in the beginning. Now, watch what a Barbanel does. But Yaakov, who knew the truth and of Esau's wickedness, was not convinced of this matter and was very afraid of his coming and was concerned about the 400 men coming with him because he knew that he was coming for the purposes of war. Thank you. So Brad Burnell says it may all seem good, but the bottom line is that Esau is wicked and he's coming in for the purposes of war. Let's contrast that with Shmuel David Luzzato. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, not to give you off the course of the group, but just to suggest that 
Jacob has to turn out to be the good guy, and Esau has to turn out to be the bad guy. Right? Even if Esau, I think Esau gets a really bad rap, actually. Um, and I, as a Jew, I'm saying that. I struggle with this there. Mm-hmm. Because I think that um, Jacob and Rivka had their own shrewd way of handling things, completely put him up. And so here again, wouldn't we suggest that our tradition has to make Esau look to be the bad guy because Jacob has to get the inheritance. That's right. He's the continued life for our people, whether that's the right thing or not. I mean, our Absolutely. Biblical characters on trial all the time. And I think we're afraid to see them as guilty, but I also think that it's a helpful thing to suggest that our own traditional ancestors um, were dysfunctional, problematic characters um, that we can learn that we can learn from in terms of right. their own behavior. Both from their successes and from their failures. Absolutely. Yep. Where did uh, Arbanel come from? He was very involved with um, King, Is- uh, King uh, Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. So, you're just hold on. Can I just put you on hold for one second, please? Thank you very much. I'm putting you on hold. Just hold on. Let's look at Luzzato. No, that's that you're supposed to. Look at page uh, the second page, Shadal. This is the Italian in the 1800s. Uh, would someone else please uh, be kind enough to read? And he's going toward you, for they believe that Asaph was only coming to honor and protect him on his way. And perhaps this really was Esau's intention. And perhaps they also understood from Esau's answer that he did not have in his heart any evil or hatred for his brother. And perhaps they also told, told Yaakov all these things that he said to them, words of peace and brotherhood. However, Yaakov did, did not trust all of this, for he was afraid when he heard that he was coming with 400 men, and scripture did not want to expand upon the conversation of Asaph and the messengers, since they did not have any benefit to him, because Yaakov did not trust them. And Lutzato is saying, Shadal is saying that he should have trusted them because they were really coming in good faith. So we have a contrast here of... Lisbon, okay. In, just the years, but you're giving us the place also. Lisbon, that's in modern-day Portugal. I don't know if it was at the time, but in the place where in the 15th century, going into the 16th century, what was... Okay, now we're going to ask you the question. Uh, Somebody just got a light bulb that went on? I just came back from Lisbon. Okay. And then they murdered a whole bunch of Jews who were... um, Keeping their religion. That's right. When they were supposed to either leave or give it up. So, what was a Barbanel's lens? The Inquisition, the murdering of Jews. You want to trust the non-Jew? Well, they come up with some great things. You can do great, great things if you just converted. And yet, those great things were constantly met by either death or uh, expulsion. That is the lens through which Abarbanel is seeing this story. Contrast that, please, with Luzzato, Shadal. What was his uh, world around him? How did he see the world? Well, we've got 1800-1865. What happened in 1789? The Enlightenment, right? Uh, Napoleon and the, the birth of... Uh, a kind of a democracy that if you look at the Jews in Italy and in France, 
you could see that they had a good life at that time because there was a move towards democracy and equality for all that included the Jews. And so Shadal was influenced by his world around him, which was much more positive vis-a-vis -vis Jews and how they lived. So if you want to look at your own lenses, I suggest that we look and see that these two very respected commentators, Abarbanel and Luzzato, Shadal, saw this story in two very different ways, primarily influenced by the world around them. For sure, but this is a contrast that I would like to suggest to all of us sitting here today, is that who actually has the narrative? The answer is we all do, depending on who we are and what our experiences have been. And if that's the case, then I would like to end this session by saying that it would behoove each and every one of us to be more understanding that the person who is sharing a narrative that's different than ours is doing just that. They're sharing a narrative that's different than ours because of their experience in this world that is different than ours. And hopefully, that will raise the tolerance level to hearing other people's narrative, even if we disagree with it, even if it's diametrically opposed to what we believe. But it's okay, because their narrative comes from a lens we simply don't have. Not because their lens is uh, deficient or wrong, it's just different because they had a different life than we did. And uh, I don't know if uh, it's the Torah that thought of this um, uh, a long time ago and we're now rediscovering it, but it has helped me in my trying to understand the craziness of 2019, whether it's the uh, uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict or it's politics either in Israel or in the United States, Whatever it is, tolerance can come to us if we understand through the study of our, our text that we just had because other people have different lenses than we do. And I hope that that is something that can really start a, uh, uh, or help to continue a move towards greater tolerance to people who really don't agree now with us. Guy. What about the Holocaust when you talk about tolerance? Where was the tolerance then? Um, you're asking a fantastic question, and I would like to counter it with where was God then? And I wish that we had those answers, and if we had the answers, or at least an understanding that maybe we can work with, not live with, but work with, then we can prevent another Holocaust of happening, uh, not just to the Jewish people, but mass murder to anyone who is different. They didn't have these same lenses. The people in, in Europe, I don't think, were seeing things through the kinds of lenses that we're talking about today. Last comment. I just wanted to, um, when, you, when you said you almost got kicked out of Hebrew school, it yeah. reminded me that um, I went to Yeshiva, and I was asking the exact same question this woman said. Is where was, if, you know, I'm being taught to daven three times a day, right, right. I'm being taught that if you do good, God will take care of you, and God, you know, and all that stuff. And so I would ask the question, so where was God during the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. And the answer I got, which was totally, totally dissatisfying to me mm -hmm. and caused me to become not religious, okay. was um, you don't question God. 
There is no answer. <laughs> you can't question him. Okay. God knew what he was doing, but it's not up to you to question him. I didn't accept that. Okay, so let me, let me twist that, if I may, for a moment and say that instead of saying uh, it, it was dissatisfying and it, was, it turned me off, if we use this exercise that we went through this afternoon and we say instead, why was it that those rabbis who gave you that answer, what was their lens? How did they see the world? Could I come to understand, not ex agree with, but I, could I come to understand their perspective by trying to figure out what their life experience is? Could that help us to understand for example, the, um, the Haredim, the ultra-religious in Israel right now, who are adamant about not sending their 18-year-old sons to the army. I, the, the, the answer that I want to give is, let's try and figure it out. We, we don't have to agree with it, but if we can understand it, then maybe we can learn to live side by side, going our own way. Um, I have to tell you that I am totally in disagreement with anyone in Israel, any of the Jewish communities that say we don't want our kids to uh, go to the army. But over time, I've come to understand that I've got to see their lens. And their lens is one that I don't agree with, but I understand it now better than ever. Can you sit and have dialogue with them and so that you can understand their lens better and they can understand your lens? That's exactly it. That when I sit with them and I say, I really, I understand where you're coming from, where you say that your way, way of protecting the Jewish state is through study because that is what God wants from me for crying out loud. If that's how they believe, I will die fighting for their right to believe that way because, right. I, but I don't agree with them, but it doesn't matter because I understand that that's who they are. And if that's who they are, I need to be tolerant of that. I would hope that they would learn that same tolerance. But they, don't come, they didn't come to my class. So I'm still the one. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.